0: awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one
1: That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle, find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: Welcome to episode 436 with my guest, Christina Howard. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website and the social media handles for this show are MentalPod, so MentalPod.com and at MentalPod. Um, The raffle for the Jordan Reed big activity book for anxious people workbook uh, as I mentioned i have two of them signed by her and it was uh, open to uh, patreon donors uh, donating at the five dollar or above level and uh, the number that I chose was 454 and the two closest guesses were uh, patreon donors Jenna uh, she doesn't provide a last name and then uh, she chose 456. And Angela Martirana uh, she chose four forty nine so I'll be contacting you guys, getting an address from you, and sending those workbooks uh out um had a weird last couple of days. I ate a lot of carbs over the weekend, and I don't know if that's what depressed me uh i was it was waffles, it was pasta it was biscuits. And it's so funny how you feel so great when you eat carbs and then the sugar crash. And then I had pasta again. Was it Monday night? And I felt so shaky and sad. And it, 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 there was no one particular thing, but it was, I wouldn't say it went as far as like suicidal depression, but it was, oh, I did, uh, I was not happy to be awake. And <laughs> living in the world, so uh, I think that's where some recovery kicked in, and I and I just went to bed early. I went and, and laid down, and that's where it's nice too to have to have Gracie. Um, we just cuddled in bed, and uh, oh, I must have kissed her for two hours. Gracie's my parole officer, and we have a unique relationship. <laughs> uh, she was sentenced to. Uh, 200 hours of community service, and I don't know how that... It was a weird court case. Don't ask me to go into details. Um, but uh, I flew up to Sacramento uh, to do a MC, uh, mental health rally on the Capitol steps, and I, I, I love doing the event, but I hate traveling. There's just something about being in hotel rooms, I don't know if it reminds me of the loneliness of being on the road for 25 years being a stand-up, but I it's I can't get any work done when when I'm in hotels and uh, all I want to do is sleep or get on a plane and and get home and one of the things that I've learned And all my years of therapy and support groups and et cetera, et cetera, is to try to get out of the future tripping, to try to get out of stressing out about, uh, you know, what do the next four hours hold? Am I going to fail? Am I going to be overwhelmed? You know, Is it going to rain? Will I find parking? Will I miss my flight? And to just try to be present, just try to be in the moment and look around and see if i can find anything beautiful or peaceful or just just be present and so there was a break in the event a a lunch break and it was starting to to turn sunny out and it was the weather was beautiful it was like in the 70s and i'm the event was uh at the uh the capital, and there's this big park, and so I decided. Well, I need some exercise because I also hadn't exercised in uh, probably four days. It was like the perfect storm of shit you're not supposed to do when <laughs> you you battle depression and anxiety. And I was, I thought, oh, I'm just going to take a walk and just be present, just feel the sun on my face, and I almost immediately started feeling better, and I just started observing the people. And I don't know there's just something about it, and it's interesting too when when I'm out and about and I'm just noticing people and trees and the sun and the architecture of a city i it, it's so easy to be present once I give myself over to that i I enjoy people watching a guy past me with a with a dog, and he was that i, I don't know if you've ever notice this, but there is a particular guy and dog combination where the guy has the big beard, not the hipster big beard, but the leave me alone. I'm on the fringes of society, big beard. Uh And, and his dog always looks like there, there's a story to that, to that, there's a story to that dog and that guy. And I don't know what the guy's name is, but it just seems like it should be Otis, and his dog should also be named Otis. And then I just found myself wondering, what what's his life like? is he Is he who I imagine him to be? Uh Maybe he's super nice, Probably is. And there I am assigning some drifter quality to him and his dog. Uh, anyway. I got home, immediately started feeling better. And and the other thing that I think might have... (laughs) The other two things I might have contributed to my depression before I left was I watched the HBO show Chernobyl. Holy fuck. (laughs) Talk about dark. It's... I don't know who pitched that show, but they they probably... The pitch was probably... What if we could have the feel of the holocaust but instead of nazis it's caused by people misusing science it it it's really well done but not upbeat holy fuck uh and the other thing and i think this might have been a really big contributor was i have a friend charlie and he had a really really tough childhood and he relapsed on crack. And there's a lot more that's going on to his story, but he he is in the process of going to prison on something unrelated. And it's, it's obviously been stressing him out his relationship fell apart and that was not a very healthy relationship and he wound up not having a place to live and relapsed on crack and I had been holding his guitar equipment because he was going to be in jail for a while he's still fighting the case but he showed up at my doorstep and I had the feeling this was going to happen um that he would come for his equipment so he could sell it. And he is such a fit guy. Just I've always been envious of how fit he is, how healthy he looks. And in the course of a week, he must have lost 20 pounds and looked exhausted and had such shame in his eyes. And the only thing I knew how to say was, Charlie, I love you, man. I love you. You know that I can't help you out with money. You know that I can't have you here while you're actively using. But just know that none of this changes how I feel about you. I love you. And his eyes... Welled up with tears. And, and he said, I just wish that I could love myself. And it was. Oh, you talk about a feeling of powerlessness. Mm. God, there's some days I just hate addiction so much so so much so I'm I'm rooting for him I'm rooting for him he's been through he's been through worse and he deep down is such a sweet sweet guy on a lighter note and what notes wouldn't be lighter than that Ron Ron uh, my dog Gracie's running partner, uh, the the stray that she was found with, uh, got a home. I forgot to mention it uh, last week's episode, but he has found a loving home about, a, about an hour from here. And I've been in touch. Uh, he's been renamed Giuseppe. And uh, his new owner would like to get him and Gracie together to play. So I'm super excited to see them back together um, and I'm still just so loving having, having Gracie the other night I've, I was sleeping and I'm sleeping on my side so I'm sleeping on my left arm and then I like to sleep with a ton of pillows and then my right arm is kind of outstretched laying on a pillow and Gracie came into bed and kind of worked her way under my right arm, and squeezed her nose in between my chest and my left arm, and and slept like that. And it was, oh, it's the best feeling in the world. It's just, it's so good. I'm so grateful for her. I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, Christina. Uh, and this is not the Christina. Uh, My girlfriend, Christina. This is a different Christina. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, My skin doesn't fit. And... She writes, after close to a year and a half of probably the most debilitating bout of depression, which ensued a lifestyle of compulsive eating and complete lack of exercise, I finally on a whim went to a yoga class tonight! Exclamation point. No promises or commitments, but there's a flicker of self-love and hope that maybe at some point I can go back to normal. Hey, I didn't spend the whole evening in bed. I moved my body a bit, and it wasn't even so scary. I love that because... You know, as they say often, so much of recovery is just taking that first baby step, and then we get a little. And you hear Gracie outside. We get um, we get some, some momentum. This is an awful awesome moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself one of many, uh, and she's a teenager. Uh, she's eighteen or nineteen. And her awfulsome moment, she writes, I've been listening to the podcast a lot in Kenya. One evening as I'm waiting for water to boil, my friend's mom asks me if I'm listening to the radio. Painfully impaired by the limited language at my disposal, I tell her it's a place where people talk about, quote, diseases of the brain. She is shocked that there are such phenomenons to which I start trying to explain the general concept of mental and emotional health. She lets me talk for a while until I make the point that, despite being privileged, many people in the West have mental issues due to stress, isolation, etc. At this, her eyes light up and she gives a serious energetic nod. So that's why, and I've seen this on TV, white people spend the whole day running around killing one another. You can't make it up Uh, today's episode is sponsored by honeybook if you run a creative business you know how to make your clients look good but if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks let honeybook do the work and make you look good honeybook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication bookings contracts and invoices all in one place If you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours a year. It's your business. Just better with HoneyBook. And right now HoneyBook is offering you guys 50% off your first year with promo code MENTAL. Payment is flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to HoneyBook.com and use promo code MENTAL for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com promo code MENTAL. Uh, this podcast is also sponsored by our long-time sponsor betterhelp.com online counseling if you've never tried it i'm a huge fan love 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 not having to leave my house uh i love the help and the guidance that i get my uh, from my counselor she's she's just awesome so uh if you're interested in trying it out go to betterhelp.com/mental make sure you include the slash /mental so they know you're coming from this podcast Fill out a questionnaire, and they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor if they have one that they feel is a good fit for you, and then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. All right, and then this is a happy moment uh, filled out by our uh, our friend who filled out the previous survey, uh, the the person uh, staying in Kenya. And for this, she calls herself, it's my fault. My worst fears are true. And her happy moment, she writes, sitting on a log under a pink sky with my friend in the home of one of her church's congregants in southern Kenya. I'm asked to say a prayer for the tea we've been prepared. My Kenyan friend knows I hate being given this task, but there's no way for me to get out of this one, so I awkwardly stutter a few unholy lines in my hesitant Swahili and apologize as we start sipping our tea, explaining that I was a bit stressed. My friend turns to me seriously, looks deep into my eyes, and softly asks, stressed about what? I give her a smile, still embarrassed and unsure which part of my prayer anxiety she doesn't understand. Failing. Failing what, she asks next. And now I'm almost laughing. The prayer. It's at this that I, too, notice the tears in my eyes. Tears that can't have much to do with the messed up prayer. It's my friend's gaze. As if it had the power to pierce through my positive, high-functioning extroversion, and into my inner emptiness. Her eyes hold mine, and the feeling of being seen is as touching as it is terrifying. That evening, she comes into the room as I'm laying motionless on our bed, losing myself in the spirals of freezing, hopeless panic. She wants to know what's up, and I summarize my state of mind by telling her that I don't understand myself. She looks up from her phone with a compassionate frown and asks me if I know what it says in the book of Genesis. God created you in his own image. What is there not to understand about yourself? A part of me is principally not willing to be instructed or consoled by Bible references, but the longer I think about her words, the more I'm able to see the core of what they mean, that I am worthy and deserving of love due to nothing but my mere existence, I reach for her hand and she squeezes it without letting go, making sure I too know I'm not alone. Despite every difficulty to self-express and gain access to religious argumentation, I find comfort in her simple, striking reactions to the emotional distress she senses in me. Today, we're hardly speaking in the same language, but our souls are in touch, and at least for a moment, I feel like the universe might have unconditional love for us after all. That's so beautiful. And that reminds me of a saying that I heard in recovery, and I don't know who to to attribute it to. Uh, But the, the saying is that religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell, and spirituality is for people who've been there.
0: Nobody's Nobody's cool and and everyone's scared scared. and we're we're just just all
1: in in this together. There was no joy Overeating
2: Apathy doesn't leave any marks Numbing out Physically I wish that I was a girl
1: Panic attacks were so violent rudderless They were mistaken for seizures Shot coke in my neck
2: The TV was talking to me
1: Romantically I am becoming the woman that I feared
2: He said There's going to be a sack of hunger strike." Nothing's real And I'm going to die
1: Sometimes I just go Hey I can't deal Just beyond broken I'm out You have to like fantasize about the person I'm with i not gonna stop it Fucking someone else It's okay to be
2: I'm here with Christina Howard, who I heard speak at a support group meeting a couple of weeks ago, and you talked about love and, you know, quote-unquote love addiction, and um, and then it evolving into your idea of what healthy love looks like. And I just thought, man, that, I, I want the listeners to to hear this. Um, so share your story if you would. Um, and I'll interject if I have any questions, but if you would just maybe kind of start with your childhood and, um, just, just kind of move forward.
1: Yes. Great. Hi, (laughs) (laughs) love and love addiction. Um, it's, I kept, I keep thinking of the Robert Palmer song. I'm addicted to love. Might as well face it. You're addicted to love. It's something that, you know, we, I feel I was a child of the eighties, first of all. So I was born in 1980 and I remember the John Hughes movies. I remember the, um, you know, the teenager movies. So I was always breakfast club, breakfast club, 16 candles. Oh, that was the one. Yeah. 16 candles was the one because she pines for the guy for the entire movie And he's completely out of her league and she feels completely, um, invisible Mm -hmm. to him. And then at the end, she gets him. And that was what I thought life was about. It was about pining and suffering and, you know, finding a couple of fun sidekicks who were, you know, privy to your pain. And then eventually you would get it. (laughs) And I didn't know. That that's actually not what happens a lot of the time. Right. Um, I grew up in a very volatile household. That was a huge uh, awakening for me was to realize that that was volatile. Did you know it was
2: volatile at the time?
1: No, I didn't know enough to know that, you know, I mean, obviously it wasn't like on television it wasn't a sitcom family mm-hmm. but um I you know what I do remember I do remember when Roseanne came out that was the first time I thought, oh wow this is that's my f-. you know I didn't mm-hmm. it's weird I didn't live in the Midwest it wasn't like Chicago I actually grew up in a very cosmopolitan environment My parents were... My father was a government official. He was working in D.C. He was working in San Francisco, back mm-hmm. and forth. We had money, um, but the the quality of the conversations was always very base. Does that make sense?
2: It, it, it wasn't about uh, emotion? Uh, no, it
1: was just very – they, they were – oh, puppy. Gracie. They were very – my parents were very um, vulgar in terms of Give give me some snapshots. Like, for example, um, they would swear a lot. There was a lot of sweat. We weren't a religious house. We, I did not grow up with religion. I did not grow up Mm -hmm. with, you know, any, um, type of community. We were very isolated. And my mom is Vietnamese. And English is her third language, and she's like super smart. She spoke French before she spoke English. She comes from a long line of teachers, and she's very highbrow Vietnamese. And so it's almost like the two of them got together and they didn't meet. It's funny. They didn't meet like because of the war. They didn't meet because my mom was a hooker and my dad was a GI, right? right. My, my dad was in Vietnam for a long time working, and my mom was a, um, a college student in in the United States, and she ended up coming back to Vietnam to make money and do Mm -hmm. whatever she did in the 60s. And they met, and they had this very volatile relationship.
2: And was it during wartime that they met? It was
1: during wartime, yeah, but my dad was much older. He was born in 1933. So by the time the Vietnam War broke out, he'd already been to war in Korea and come Mm -hmm. back. And lived to tell about it and so what he was doing in vietnam was much higher up and what my mom was doing in vietnam was smuggling gold she was actually going she was a flight attendant for Mm -hmm. air vietnam and she was flying to like cambodia and laos and thailand and buying gold up on the black market and bringing it back into vietnam and selling
2: it for her own gain or to yeah to make money okay
1: you could do that kind of stuff in Vietnam in the sixties, you know. Gotcha. I mean, especially when you were flight attendant, you could pretty much do a lot of
2: And who would she be selling gold to?
1: I'm not sure who she would sell it to. I think it's kind of like drug dealing. Like you would just know who to bring it to. You would you gotcha. would be the carrier, you know. My dad said she would bring bring back big bank rolls and she was making way more money than he was, and he was working for the US government, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she was she was good with money and she was really smart and um but she was insane. Her love addiction, I think, what I recognize to be her love addiction was, um, manifested as, uh, the narcissistic kind of love. You know, she, she, she was love, she would love bomb. Mm -hmm. I think, are people familiar with love bombing? Talk about it. I think love bombing is you meet someone and immediately you, you bond, and, and there's a lot of, um, connection. There's a lot of immediate, intense feelings and emotions. And then you get you get enmeshed with Mm -hmm. a person
2: and and there's a high, there's a high,
1: there's a sense of, Oh my gosh, I know you, I've known you forever. We're perfect for each other. Mm, There's kind
2: of no boundaries, no boundaries. She and my dad were, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And she and my dad were that, you know, she really, she just kind of claws into you. Mm. And my father was extremely avoidant, very emotionally unavailable, which was
2: catnip to her. I'm sure.
1: Exactly. Very charming. He's very charming good looking, you know he's past now, but looking at pictures of him, you know, he was tall and he was very strong and smoked cigarettes and, you know, was had that kind of nineteen sixties uh,
2: out of a John Lacar novel. Sam
1: Spade, you know
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: So yeah, I think the two of them I think the two of them had a very trauma bonding type relationship where she was from a messed up background and he was from a messed up background and they met in a war torn country in the midst of you know, a lot of high emotions and high anxiety and people like that thrive in chaos. Yeah. And they raised me to thrive in chaos because when they got mad at each other, it was epic. It was screaming, cussing, you know, swearing, accusations. I just hearing stuff about their marriage that I didn't really need to hear about.
2: No boundaries between the kids. Didn't
1: even notice that the kid was there. Like there was no kid in the room. They were not talking like there was a kid in
2: the room. Right.
1: Nowadays, I have friends that are, Parents and they're so conscious about what their kids were hearing. And the only plus thing plus the kids have
2: got their nose on the phones, so <laughs> they're they got the parent tuned out anyway.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they I just think it's ironic that the only thing my mother was very conscious of me being shielded from was sex. Like mm. do not watch. Anything graphic, no sexually explicit material. But violence, you can have all the violence. I could watch all of the violent movies with my dad, war movies, you know, um, Dirty Harry. um,
2: And you're how old at this?
1: I mean, since I was like, like six, seven, eight, nine. Oh my God. Like I was watching violence on television. I remember The Godfather, watching the last scene of The Godfather where, you know, he murders all the, the heads of the families. and yeah. But, you know, there was not, if there was a sex scene on television, it was like, close your eyes, go in the other room. Isn't that
2: amazing? That, yeah. That, that, that we, it's okay to see people destroy each other, but right. don't show them bring each other pleasure.
1: Right, right. So that, yeah, there was a lot of shame around that. And, and yet violence was something that I was very um, comfortable around. So I didn't know that it was inappropriate. I just knew that if you push people too far, they will snap. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of my childhood was being brought up in a volatile house and that, you know, the fighting would be epic. But then at the end of the session, the screaming session, everyone would go to their corner. It would be silent for maybe weeks on end. Ooh. Maybe they wouldn't speak to each other. Maybe I wouldn't be spoken to by my mother because I was always inadvertently somehow involved in her drama. Uh, Maybe it was my dad wasn't hard enough on me for something that I had done. Maybe my dad was babying me too much and not raising me to be, you know, because Americans to a Vietnamese culture, Americans, according to my mother, were just spoiled rotten. Like, Americans were entitled. Americans were – like, a lot of what you hear about white entitlement and white Mm -hmm. oppression, it wasn't about white people in my family. It was just about Western culture Mm -hmm. as a whole. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a cultural thing. Americans had everything. And Vietnam, obviously, was completely ripped apart at the seams. And so for her to raise a Vietnamese child – and I'm only half – but – you know, I didn't know what that meant. Am I, am I Vietnamese? Am I, am I Caucasian? Am I American? Like, what, who yeah. am I? But I wanted to be what she wanted me to be, which was respectful and aware and obedient, you know, good kid.
2: And be able to throw a good punch.
1: Well, yeah, definitely be able to stand up for myself because she taught me that the world was going to basically take everything from me if I wasn't careful constantly look over my shoulder, constantly be aware. And um, yeah, everyone's out to get you except mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy will be the only ones to protect you.
2: Who ironically are some of the most unsafe people in your life at at that point.
1: Very unsafe. Very, very, very unsafe. And so I, as an only child, I kept that in and i didn't talk about it to teachers i didn't i didn't even speak about some of the violence that i had witnessed in my house until physical i physical violence physical violence yeah fighting um weapons i mean it sounds like a movie but it was only it wasn't all the time you know it was enough that i could that i felt it but we had I would say 85% of the time we did normal family things. Mm-hmm. We went on vacations. We watched movies. We went out to dinner. We wrapped presents. But it, it's just living with that. You never knew when the shoe was going to drop. You never knew when the raging was going to happen and what was going to trigger it. So I learned to be incredibly hypervigilant. It was basically like growing up in an alcoholic family. From what I understand about um, people who grew up in alcoholism, it, It's it's the exact same thing, but take out the alcohol. Right. So, yeah, that was my childhood.
2: Wow. Yeah. The, the mind fuck, too, of the environment where there were long periods of calm, uh, it's so easy to use that to minimize what, what we experienced. And if you think about it in a lot of ways, it's like saying – Uh, why am I making a big deal about getting stabbed 364 days a year? I didn't get stabbed. Right. So why, why am I making such a big deal?
1: Well, and when you're steeped in that culture and you're steeped in that as this is just the way it is. And every now and then mommy gets mad. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, if you didn't make mommy so mad, mommy wouldn't have to react that way. So there was always this onus that I was taking upon myself as a child. Like, man, I wish I hadn't you're responsible for other people's up. feelings
2: and happiness. One
1: hundred percent. Not only their feelings and their unhappiness, but I am responsible for the chaos because if all I all I had to do was just do what I was
2: told, to be perfect,
1: right? Right. So I <laughs> How didn't. How could have, that set
2: you up for what, for difficulties? Right?
1: That's why I relate to people that grew up in really restrictive religious households because I didn't. And that's the thing. I didn't have religion. I didn't have the God thing. It was just mommy and daddy were God. You know, do what we say to do because we are. The rules. Yes.
2: And there was also no healthy example of reconciliation. Right. With you. It was the, it was the silent treatment because a couples, parents are going to disagree. They're gonna make mistakes in front of kids. But for me, the really, really important thing is how they come back together and that there they can model. Right. For kids that people make mistakes, but it's how they clean them up. Right. And how they take ownership of them that matters.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was none of that. There was uh, usually long periods of silence, long periods of tension, and then eventually, mommy and daddy would be talking again. And mm. it would because it, they are they were very close. They they were married for fifty years, and they had this lovely friendship. You know, I mean, I know when I talk about the bad, it paints a very, very drastic kind of epic picture, but that's not the whole story, you know, the whole story. And that's what I think messes with love addicts so badly when we've been raised in that is that it's not the whole story. It's not. It's, it's only the bad stuff and the good stuff is so good. Yeah. And they were really good friends. I mean, it's
2: intense. It's exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and, and and they trusted each other, and they did have each other's backs. You know, what they really needed was some frickin' therapy.
2: Yeah, some tools to some communicate.
1: Some tools, some kind of moral compassing that held them accountable, not just to the morals that they believed were appropriate, but the morals that they might not be comfortable adhering to. Mm-hmm. That's the thing with moral compassing and morality. You know, it's not always convenient. To, to consider other people in the room. You know, you might want to act out on your feelings and you might be feeling passion and you might be feeling like this needs to be said right now. Mm -hmm. That's a very selfish, you know, it's like, I don't like to do that until I've checked in with several people. Do I need to say this? Do I, do, do I personally need to say, say this myself? Mm -hmm. And does this need to be said at this time?
2: Yeah. I have a friend who says, um, they're speaking about himself, he said, "My reactions are always instantaneous, excessive, and inappropriate."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much you know. And I, you know, I don't know if that's because of my background or if it's because I am an alcoholic.
2: Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, you're sober too. I'm sober. Yeah. How long yeah. you been sober?
1: You know, it's funny. I've been sober for 35 days after a slip. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had three mm-hmm.
2: years. And and how you feeling?
1: amazing. Yeah. We just talked about this today in 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 uh, in one of my recovery groups that you know sometimes it takes a slip to mm. really understand what this disease is. So the powerlessness of it. Oh my gosh. It's like I didn't know that my resentments were so deadly. Oh, they'll kill you. Yeah. And it's funny. It ties into what we're talking about because, and I don't know, I think people might be able to relate to this that have grown up in traumatic childhoods. You disassociate way before you get drugs or alcohol.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't need pot or alcohol when you're seven. Oh, yeah. You you are locked into fantasy and- Yeah. Just going someplace else. Your body can't leave, but your mind can.
1: You just go to your room and close the door. And there's no lock on the door. But Mm. you know what? For now, I'll just close the door and I have my books and I have my television shows. And I would just wait it out, man. I would just wait it out. And eventually someone would come knocking on my door and telling me it was dinner time and nobody Mm. would address whatever had happened. Mm. It would just be like, all right, well, let's. And then I would just shove food in my mouth. So dinner was like the best time. I loved dinner because nobody would talk. We would watch television and I would just shovel food in my mouth. And that's how I would cope with whatever had happened or transpired. And even if it was a nice normal day, it was still a nice time for me to just like be comforted with something.
2: So food was a soother early food on. Food was the
1: first soother.
2: And what what became the other soothers oh, and gosh. how did that happen?
1: Let's see. <laughs> the first soother was food. The next the, – the in high school, the soother became – um acceptance and validation from people. Mm-hmm. You know, getting I th- I remember as early as sixth grade because we moved to Sacramento. We moved from San Diego to Sacramento and I was in sixth grade. And it was different. The kids in Sacramento, I moved to a very urban part of, you know, very South Sacramento was a very urban Demographic. And it was because we didn't have the money anymore to sustain the lifestyle that I had been bred in. I had been like raised and bred in. Upper middle class, East Coast, suburb of DC. Then we moved to San Francisco. And that's when my dad was working a lot. San Francisco, very upper crust, very white bread, right around the Presidio. Like that was, you know, the flat that we were renting. And then back to DC and then Hawaii. We moved to Hawaii when my, uh, my dad retired and I lived in Honolulu. So I was like, my background was very cosmopolitan, very well traveled. And then it like, you know, it all hit the fan. I don't know. People just bottom out. My parents financially bottomed out and we couldn't, she couldn't get a job, my mom. And so we ended up moving up to Sacramento because there was opportunities up in Sacramento for education. She could get a job there more easily, but we didn't know. My mom didn't know where the next paycheck was going to come. My dad was getting a pretty nice, um, retirement from the government. He'd been in for decades, but we were just sort of like destitute in in, in their, you know, interpretation.
0: Because,
1: mm-hmm. you know, it's like everybody, it's all subjective. You know, right. when, when I had a woman that was talking to me on the phone, just like freaking out because her husband's only making... a week right now and you know like as a server as as a restaurant server which is what I still do that's like a lot of money but you don't know until you're in that person's shoes like she's got a house to worry about she's got kids she's got bills she's got you know it's all relative so it's really hard to do the compare and despair thing because you just don't know what that person's dealing with right so for my mom not knowing like how she was going to pay for groceries and knowing she had savings and bonds but like there's no Mm -hmm. income coming in so we Moved to Sacramento so she could try to get some income.
2: Was your was your dad blowing money on 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 things? No, it not just at wasn't all. a big pension.
1: It just was only enough to pay the mortgage on the house. That's always what I was told.
2: Yeah, for for the career that he had, that that. I don't know that I that, that sounds puzzling uh, to me was he, he wasn't like a gambler or they uh,
1: weren't gamblers. No, I mean, they would go to Vegas every now and then and they would spend right. large sums of money. But no, it wasn't. I'm not sure what exactly. I think just because of the recession, mm-hmm. you know, in the late 80s. And um I think just that it was it, he was just not willing to work after he retired. Gotcha. And my mom was used to coming from he worked and worked a lot and she didn't have to have a job. And now they're they're just. Juggling. They're basically doing what me and my husband do now, which is double income. We figure it out. We kind of go month to month. We have some small savings, but not a lot. Something major happens. We're kind of screwed. You know, it's like yeah. that kind of thing.
2: Okay. So, so you're uh, going to high school or, or grade school? At, in that point Sacramento. It was, at
1: that point, it was sixth grade. So okay. I went from sixth grade to high school in Sacramento.
2: Validation became a very, a very thing.
1: different environment. Yeah. The kids were much, much more hard in terms of, you know, what, like what my, idea of what cool was Mm -hmm. um it was just a more urban lifestyle so basically you were looked up people were it wasn't like about jocks and cheerleaders it was about like who could fight (laughs) if you if you got jumped Mm -hmm. could you fight because kids got jumped a lot and um, jumped into
2: gangs or just jumped for just their jumped money? on the playground. Just I jumped.
1: like that was something that would happen. Like someone so got jumped because kids were violent. There yeah. was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of single family homes. There was a lot of um drug use. There was a lot of, you know, it was ghetto. We live, we, we, yeah. South Sacramento's ghetto.
2: And did you get jumped?
1: I've never gotten jumped. No. Cause I was very nerdy looking mm-hmm. to the point where I, I mean, not not like a bully type, I was just not in that scene. I had to learn how to do that, so the older I got as I came up in seventh, eighth you know ninth, tenth grade, I started learning how to wear that. you know I learned how to smoke pot, I learned how to you know roll joints and mm-hmm. drink malt liquor and smoke reds, marble reds, and it was very much putting that on, yeah because I didn 't come from that. I was very, very sheltered and very you know babied and and now i'm like trying to learn how to smoke cigarettes and drink old english out of a paper bag because that's what you did right in south sack in the ghetto in the right. 90s you know yeah. and you listen to gangster rap and you cussed and you cussed out your teachers and you skipped school and you kind of like put the middle finger up to authority
2: are there any uh Snapshots, you remember, of you getting that validation by being somebody who you weren't, weren't authentically inside. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um I remember the rumor going around in ninth grade, Christina Howard smoked pot. Christina Howard smoking weed now. And it was like, what? Christina Howard? She's like – A goody two shoes. She's, you know, in the drama club. She's the, and I just didn't want that. I didn't. I didn't get validation from that. People didn't validate you for doing esteemable acts where I came from. They for for doing
2: theater. Yeah, for doing anything
1: good. For you know, getting on the honor roll or I mean, I was on the student council in seventh and eighth grade. I was the vice president. I would plan all the honor roll lunches. I would plan the dances. I was, you know, always working the door at the dance. And nobody. Gave a shit. <laughs> All right. I wanted to be known for, you know, beating the crap out of somebody or for, um, I did, I did get left at Great America in, in eighth grade for the eighth grade trip because my watch stopped. Mm-hmm. And so me and my best friend, Cheryl, and this other girl, we were in Great America, which is a theme park for people that don't know. It's like, you know, six flags. And um, apparently we just stayed at the park way after all of the eighth grade students were supposed to meet mm-hmm. and the buses had to leave without us. They had like the whole, they had security call. They called our parents. They were freaking out and they thought that we were just screwing around. And really mm-hmm. my watch had just stopped. And that was Probably the most popular I ever got in eighth grade <laughs> was that we were, to- we were almost suspended. We were almost prevented from graduating, like walking, mm-hmm. you know, for eighth grade. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. I got so much attention.
2: <laughs> so when does uh, love enter the picture? When do boys uh, enter the picture?
1: As early as I can remember. Five years old, crushes. You know, mm-hmm. having these deep emotional attachments to um, what I saw as characters in movies. Mm-hmm. I didn't have deep personal relationships with people. I didn't have close friends. I didn't have a lot of family. So everything I interpreted through a filter of uh, literary relationships, you know, like the boy, like like So you would Candles. assign
2: magical qualities yeah. to who you imagined he was and then pine for him in a fantasized way.
1: Yeah, it would start with something small, like maybe I would just like his shirt, or maybe he would crack a joke, or maybe I would like the way he looked in a certain article of clothing, like a jacket or something, and then I would fixate on it. And I would start to fantasize about that boy liking me back. Mm -hmm and it would become like a little mini obsession you know it would be exciting for me to go to class if he was there it would be exciting for me to pass him in the halls i would reroute the way that i would walk through the class through the through the school campus to see if i could pass him and catch his eye mm-hmm. you know and the
2: biggest high was getting seated in homeroom near somebody that you had a crush on that yeah. to me was the gold mine oh yeah because
1: yeah. your classes would change every year, and so it would be like, oh, are they gonna be in my, you know, are mm-hmm. they gonna be in any of my classes? I can remember every single crush, every single crush that I had through school, and um, it would rotate too. You know, I would fixate on one, and then that one would not go anywhere. Maybe they would get mm-hmm. a girlfriend, and then I would add another one into the rotation. And, and-, and
2: in your imagination, what would play out? What what was the the fantasy? The fantasy.
1: It never went farther. It never went far enough for me to even know what
2: to do. Just you being in their presence and looking into each other's eyes or spending time or.
1: Yeah. Was it,
2: was it that you would look cooler in other people's eyes or that that person would see you or that you could tell them your problems? What, what, it, you from know what, what it was? you can remember?
1: It was that someone would break through the wall that i had put up that nobody knew was even there everybody had an impression of who i was you know Mm -hmm. christina howard was uh in the band christina howard did all the plays christina howard was really smart did really good in school and she was a little bananas like Mm -hmm. christina howard's bananas that was kind of what was followed me from sixth, seventh, eighth grade into high school. Um, I was manic, you know, I was, I was wild, but I was a good student, so I could mm-hmm. pull it all together. And nobody knew that inside I was, I was it, terribly suicidal, very, very, very depressed. My highs were high when I was up and upbeat, mm-hmm. but my lows were dark. You know, I would go home and I would journal and I really wanted to die. And, I wanted someone to see me. I wanted someone to see past the persona that I brought out at school and with my family. I hated my family. I mean, I felt so bored at family functions. Um, I never felt Vietnamese enough. I never felt like my mom liked me or was approving of me, even though she would brag about all of my accomplishments to people. Mm -hmm. It was like, I was just a shell of a person. And I didn't think that anybody really saw me for who I was. So in the books that I would read in the fantasy novels with like vampires, you know, the vampire diaries, it was all about these people with secrets. And then that one, that one secret, you know, um, that hero that had a secret, and the secret was that he was a vampire, would mm-hmm. like be discovered by the heroine of the book. And the reason why he would fall in love with her was because she could see past the mystery. Mm-hmm. She could see into his soul, and she would know that he was really a good person, mm-hmm. even though he was a blood sucking monster. Right. And she would fall in love with that. He would fall in love with her, and he would like treat her so gently in mm-hmm. his, you know, clawed hands. He would hold her like, <laughs> Like a baby
0: bird,
1: (laughs) I wanted to be that baby bird that was being held by the monster. You wanted to be nurtured, absolutely,
2: and have have your pain validated, and be
1: taken away. I wanted to be taken out of the situation. You Mm -hmm. know, I didn't want to stay in. I hated Sacramento. I hated living in this urban ghetto. I wanted to be back where all the fancy people were, not you know shopping at Food for Less and you know like not being able to afford going to the camping trip and i just didn't want that anymore i wanted my old life back or the fantasy of what i thought the old life that was right. and um that was really the root of my love addiction and that so, fantasy
2: and so then how did it take this is how it took root and then how did it uh grow from there and and become
1: what it became
2: unmanageable to the point that you uh, obviously sought help,
1: so I came to ucla in ninety eight that was the year that I graduated, and I immediately got accepted to ucla in the three the theater program and it was mm-hmm. very prestigious. It was like a big, big deal that I got accepted at eighteen. so as soon as I left Sacramento and I came to Los Angeles, it was like the the bondage was released mm-hmm. I was out. And I had done it on my own merit, you know, like nobody, nobody, gave that to me. So
2: it was a form of validation.
1: Huge validation that I really was worth something, that I made it. I got out of my parents' house. They were so worried about me because little did I know, I was very innocent and very naive. I was not capable. I was not street smart. That's what my Mm -hmm. mom would always say. You're not street smart. You don't know the difficulties of the world. And I was like, yeah, I am. I'm from Sacramento. I smoke Marlboro Reds, (laughs) later. Marlboro Reds and drink old English. And if I I get jumped, I know what to do. But I wasn't. I really wasn't that hardened girl. That's not how my parents raised me to be. They tried, but it, you know, I was I'm a very very sensitive creature. And so I come to UCLA and I could just pretend. I could just pretend like I was worldly. I could pretend. I remember I told this is the craziest thing. So, there's this game, this drinking game called I never. um, I
2: played it. Yeah, right.
1: Where you drink if you've done the thing that someone Mm -hmm. announces. And so I remember specifically being at a frat party, but it was like a pre, it was like before school started. It was Mm -hmm. like in the summertime and I was doing the whole campus tour or whatever. We were at this frat party and all the frat guys were there. And I really wanted to, I was a virgin. So I'm 18 years old. I'm a virgin. And I wanted to impress them with how, you know, raunchy I was. So we played I Never. And I specifically said, I never made my own porn. And I drank as though I had complete fabrication, never even close to doing anything like that. But I wanted to say that because I wanted the guys to look at me like, oh, shit, Mm -hmm. she's cool. And that was just an old pattern of mine. Like, like where this, where this, you know, now it's like, I'm so different. I've changed so much, but that's not what I thought was wanted of me. I thought I, I thought people wanted me to be
2: that girl it's interesting how how kids don't really have a concept of the difference between immediate attention and lasting mm-hmm. attention uh, and especially classically girls
1: right. Oh my goodness, I had no idea I was so naive, so the guys that were in my theater program that were at that party. Told everyone, I had no idea until years later that that was what my reputation was, was mm-hmm. that they, that, that's the girl that like made the porn and she's, um, a freak. And she's from Sacramento, and people that know Sacramento knew what school I went to, thought that I was like, why was I not pregnant or a Chola? That's literally what was said about me, like, how's she from that high school and she's not pregnant or from or or like a Mexican, you know, gangster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I, I was able to overcome that, obviously, because that's not who I am. I mean, as soon as you meet me and you hang out with me, you know that. Like, oh, that's not who you are. You're totally not that. So I also kind of got off on that a lot about being sort of a chameleon and fitting Mm -hmm. into whatever group I could fit into. And when I finally fell in love for the first time, which was when I was like 18 or 19, it was very short-lived. It was a relationship where I met this Adorable, sweet guy, got just a year older, probably just about to turn 21, and I fell madly in love with him because we did have that connection. It was real. You know, at 18, 19, that was real at that point. And um I turned right around and I made the choice to have sex with two friends who I think were gay. I'm pretty sure they're both gay and we did like a we did like a threesome but it was it wasn't intimate it was like a joke almost like we got drunk and we had sex and i did it on purpose
2: Be, this was with the, the the boyfriend
1: no the boyfriend wasn't even involved we had just fallen in love and i didn't wow. want to lose my virginity to him
2: oh okay i was
1: scared to lose my virginity to him because He would then have the power to destroy me. Mm. I didn't want to give my virginity to someone that could destroy me. It made absolutely no sense.
2: But it's the to the addict mind, it makes perfect sense. I'm
1: so glad to the to
2: the to the to the traumatized person afraid of intimacy. It makes perfect sense. It's like it's like you're hiding the jewelry, right? Because you're letting somebody in the house, right.
1: Because virginity is was supposed to be saved for marriage, yeah. that was what I was told, not taught told right, and nobody and ever, that it's
2: taken from you rather than it's something you. that's shared
1: right right and so and so I did not I really 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 wanted to be sexually active because i I wanted to I wanted the validation and I wanted the um the satiation of the physical desire, right? To be touched and to be, I mean, when you're 18, 19, you know, your hormones are going and mm-hmm. everybody around you is having sex. I mean, it was the nineties. And it these were two
2: male friends, two male yours? friends. Yeah. Yep. who I felt
1: so comfortable with, I mean, I right. loved these guys. One of them was definitely gay and the other one was still kind of in the closet, mm-hmm. but, um, that was probably one of his first sexual experiences with a man Right, and I was there, but like, I wasn't really, it, it wasn't, an intimate thing it was almost like performance art in, in right. college we were very much about performance
2: and, art. and, and theater kids, theater are, kids so i was i was a I was a, th- <laughs> I was a theater uh student in college and it's it, it, it was like woodstock oh my god it was like woodstock yeah it was just yeah everybody get naked at the drop of totally. a hat and it was very liberating it was exciting for for me for a kid that was raised catholic yeah but uh, i did not learn anything about intimacy no no, yeah. it was. So, it was like performances. They were like performances. They were like
1: performances. Yeah. And and I wanted, you know, and so I had to go back and tell my boyfriend because when we met, he knew I was a virgin and, mm. but I didn't see him every day. He, you know, he didn't go to college with me. He kind of lived in the Valley. He was an actor. He was doing his own thing. And, and I mean, I just want to make this very clear. I was very, very in love with him. I was not, I was not just infatuated with him as an obsession. Like I genuinely had these deep, deep feelings for him, but I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to take it slow. I ran right out and I basically like completely acted out sexually so that I could be safe acting out with him Mm. because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have that sexual relationship with him, but he couldn't be the first I had to have the control and that, uh, that didn't destroy the relationship at that time, but it, it really did put a cramp in my spiritual
2: psychiatric health. <laughs> and, and and I love, too, that you then had an awesome I never.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I lost <laughs> my virginity like a phone phone. in a threesome. Yeah, we filmed it, too. Is <laughs> you, that crazy? Did you really? We totally filmed it. We fil- I mean, I'm crazy. We filmed it. We, like, played Mozart's Requiem Mass. Oh, it, we my were- God.
2: What theater students. Totally. Oh, I my would, like, God. You pretentious Oh, my God. We're so
1: ridiculous. Like, I was dressed up. I wore sunglasses and, like, an evening gown. It was, <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was just so bad. I can't believe I'm even telling – I don't tell people this, you know, but but I have no shame over it. It's just – it is what it is, and it's just too hard sometimes to unpack it for people. Yes. You know, so I hope anyone listening to this relates yes. Because this is what it is. This Mm -hmm. is the disease. You know, I thought I thought I knew what I was doing. I was just really creative. But that wasn't me. I was playing a part.
2: Oh, my God. I just love the idea of somebody in the midst of a threesome stopping and like doing a Bertolt Brecht monologue.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly – because I had to strip it down. I and mean,
2: what became of the, the footage? Did oh, I got, I'm sure we deleted it. Yeah. I'm sure we
1: erased it. It, it, was, it was a rumor then that went around that we had done it. And it was – I knew it was so crazy that people – half the people wouldn't believe it. Half people right. would be like, there's no way that happened. But a lot of people did believe it right. because they knew how crazy we all
2: were. Mm-hmm. So uh, the relationship
1: survived. But through that, it did. Yeah. Through it that, it did. survived through that. But here's the thing. He had been molested. As a child, so obviously he had his own issues. Mm-hmm. So sexually coming together, his first sexual experience with a with a woman that was, you know, not with an older kid that was molesting him. My first sexual experience was with this insane, you know, mm-hmm. performance art thing. So when we came together, it was like the blind leading the blind. We yeah. we couldn't function sexually. He literally, it was difficult for him to mm-hmm. be sexually aroused. And that was the first time I had ever experienced that. It brought back memories for him of being molested and it made him nauseous. And wow. I was, that was, he didn't project it onto me right. purposefully. But when you want to, or when you want your partner to get excited and you want to have this beautiful thing and they can't because they want to puke. Right. Right. And, and I'm so selfish and I'm so. You know, of course, I make it all about me, and it's it's why right. I'm know, not
2: attractive. I'm not enough. good
1: enough. I'm not yeah. thin enough. I'm not. It's just which bonkers.
2: which is puts then added pressure on that person. You may think that you're taking the pressure off of them, right. but you're actually putting more pressure on them because then they feel this burden of having to convince you that right. it's not about you. Right, and so it's just another hurdle. Yeah, of this is so fraught. And then the next time, because I've experienced that as, as well. And then the next time, the anticipation that you won't be able to perform right. and you'll have to go through this whole thing of you convincing them that it's not about them, then adds even more pressure to it. Yeah. And so then it's just like, well, I would rather just, uh, you know.
1: And when you don't have the tools to be patient and to be loving and to, you know, you, you, you immediately just go to the, the black and white which is this isn't working right i can't do this
2: or to take baby steps to just say hey you know we're not going to take our clothes off yeah let's just watch a a movie tonight and kiss right and then maybe the next time we get together but see
1: we were both so stoned right that like how do you know how do no, we know what
2: to feel no, or think? And, we're and nobody's super gonna
1: high and yeah no,
2: and nobody's gonna come up with that on their own people in their 30s and 40s we you know they have to go to counseling and right. have it suggested to them because we don't see that modeled. We don't see fear of intimacy modeled. We, we don't see how these problems are solved. It's, you know, it's a, well, the guy can't get a boner. And so she's angry and she yells at everybody, exactly. you know, some trope. That, oh
1: God. It's just such a shame, you know, that we're not taught this yeah. at an early age. We're taught the antithesis of this. We're taught to just sort of troubleshoot. And we learn through watching other people, but nobody ever sits us down and 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 really teaches us um about emotional sexual sobriety,
2: yeah, and about fear right, fear around sex yeah. fear is pervasive for most people through sex, yeah, and it's never talked about it's never talked about there were many times that I had sex that i didn't want to right and and there was just a tuning out and just going through literally the motions, right? wanting it to be over with and not even realizing that I, I didn't have to, that yeah, that didn't make choice. me a bad partner right, right. or...
1: No, the pressure is immense. The pressure is just insane. And drugs and alcohol is what I used to cope so that I could perform, so that I could keep going forward and 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 i thought mistakenly that if i just kept trying if i just kept finding a new partner or doing it this way or doing it that way you know that i would eventually find the right fit i would find the right person the right situation
2: and it would just work out and what was the fear that you needed to numb was there fear
1: it was uh it was the fear of being present It was the fear of being present because now that I'm married, now that I have someone in my life that uh, is a husband, you know, not not someone that that I'm dating or that I'm seeing or that I'm, you know, living with. I mean, it really changed for me. Marriage really changed me. I feel like no matter what, he's there for me.
2: And, And that it's safe to it's let all the walls down
1: completely safe and it's it's secured like it's almost like you know when you don't know if you lock the door or not mm-hmm. like did i lock the door it's like i know the door is locked I, mm-hmm. even though divorce is always you know people get divorced but that's not in our that's just not in our uh reality we we right. we knew when we got married that this was going to be a life commitment mm-hmm. and uh I have to have that kind of safety because my addict mind will find an escape route. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very spiritual thing what I entered into. I I entered into a decision that this was completely safe.
2: How did you get to that place where you went from I can't be present because love is combustible Yeah. And chaotic.
1: I had to find a higher power. I had to find a power greater than myself that was greater than parental love, that was greater than lust and romantic love. And it's something that I think about that, you know, the Greeks have several words for love. It's not just love. It's uh, They have eros, which is romantic love and lust. They have phileo which is brotherly love mm. between friendships, and they have storge, which I don't remember. I have to Google it, but I thought... Love of stores? Ah, yes, storks, actually. <laughs> no, it was, I think it's love of children, but mm. I have to look it up. And they have um, the last one, which is agape, which is the spiritual
2: love of God. Mm. And does that also include love of self? I don't know. Because I would think love of self, not in a narcissistic way, but in right. a... Um, I, I suppose in a spiritual way, because it, to believe in a higher power or a benevolent force in the universe, you know, be it conscious or not, um, there, in in my opinion, there has to be kind of a connection between the two. But because where where did we come from? Right. Even if you take it to an an uh, an atomic level, right we came from somewhere stardust whatever right but what created that stardust and is there where does love come from in the universe and so it's
1: like i i feel like it's a reflection so when i because you know how when you it's like when you don't know the sound of your own voice you Mm -hmm. just you speak it and you know you're speaking but then you hear your voice reflected back at you and you're like is that my voice that feels so disembodied That's what I feel like love of my higher power is for me. When I'm in myself, I don't know what love is until it's reflected back at me.
2: Give us some examples where you experienced love. that, Ref- how, how you began to experience a sense of your higher power, Love, self-love, safety, were there moments, was there work involved in getting to this place? Were there things that you did on a daily or weekly basis that increased your sense of safety, connection, you know, whatever, how did you get to this healthier place? Because I don't imagine it was an intellectual thing where a light just switched on and you went, yeah, there's a higher power. Hey, you know, so
1: I I had to meet other people that were on the same journey as me. I really had to connect with people that were on this path, not the path that I was on, which is where everybody was just kind of bumping around, like bumping into walls in the dark and thinking that they knew what they were doing. Basically, I had to find people that had no frickin' clue what they were doing and were being honest about it.
2: Mm -hmm. And before we get to that, what did your bottom look like? What, What do you remember when you, when you decided I need help? What brought you to that?
1: So that man, that boyfriend of mine that I was in love with at 18, I did not let go of the idea that he was my soulmate well into my 30s. Wow. It was devastating to every relationship that I had after him because anytime something went wrong in that relationship, in the new relationship, I would think back to him and I would think... I messed it up with him. He's who I'm supposed to be with. How do I make that work? The person that's in front of me, that loves me, that's trying, is really not the guy for me. The guy for me is in the past, and I need to bring him back and resurrect that. And it got to such a – it got to the point where I couldn't believe I was 31 and still trying to make it work with him. I knew there was something wrong with me. Um, And then remember how I said I had the, The
2: guy you fell in love with at 18? Yeah, that I was still trying to. You were. Were you still with him at thirty-one? No, no, but
1: we had reconnected. We, we we never left each other. You know how Facebook is. I mean, right. people are. You're you're never really that far from your. When ex. did you
2: stop being boyfriend girlfriend?
1: Six months after we dated in nineteen ninety nine. Oh.
2: oh my god.
1: We and and I I was absolutely beside myself for a year after that. And, and did he
2: know all of this?
1: He knew. Yeah, he was like, she's like Stacy from Wayne's World. She doesn't. Get it. We broke up. It's over. Right. And then I dated his best friend for two years because his best friend was in love with me. So not only did I not work with me and him, but I picked the worst possible person to rebound with. Right. Destroyed their friendship. And again, I think an addict will understand, right? Yeah,
2: it's the closest way you could get to him.
1: Yeah, and he liked me. And really what I needed was someone to love me. So if he wasn't going to love me because it was too complicated, because we couldn't be sexually intimate, because he was really, really into pot, he really cared about his band really more than he cared about having a relationship at 19, which, duh, you're 19. You have a band. You're a stoner. Do your band you know right. what i mean you can't have a lasting intimate relationship mm. but i took it so personally and then his best friend who had liked me the whole time was like well you know he's just not good for you and i'm here and mm. you know i love you and it's just like great so that's the love addiction i'll take it where it's i fear can get being it. alone yeah and i couldn't yeah. i couldn't comprehend that it was a bad choice all i wanted was the goods give me the drug give me the validation give me the attention Give me the romance and do you
2: think part of the validation from him was the the catnip quality that here was a guy that was keeping me at arm's length so that if he's not fully present it's a it's almost like a task to try to, to you can never be satiated you're well, I,
1: I just thought that the only reason why he wasn't coming back to me was because he was angry at me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I now I'm realizing that that triggered my childhood. In my childhood, horrible things would be said and done in my house because of anger, but they would always come back. Mm-hmm. There would always be that lowering of the drawbridge or raising of the drawbridge, as it right. were. And uh, and everything would be okay again. And I was just waiting for him to just get over it. <laughs> Like, no, this isn't broken irre- irreparably. Right. We're going to get back together again. Right. I mean, I know I'm fucking your best friend, but you right. know, like, but don't you, that's not real. You know, I'm doing that just to because, you
2: know. <laughs> right. It, it, the, the belief is that the love addict is also a love avoidant because they fall in love with people who are love avoidants. Yeah. So. It's safe to them because they know that person's not going to smother them, that there's a distance that feels safe to them, and that's intoxicating. Yeah. And so I guess my question was, do you think that that is part of why it was so easy to stay in love with this guy was because he never really became present in a healthy sense. There was always one foot out the door with him and there wasn't the, the the fear that you know he wasn't going to come into your metaphorical house and well i believed he would i i am the love avoidant just as much as i'm the
1: love addict right i had an idea and the only reality i wanted to accept was my reality and he wasn't following directions you know his soul was mine but his mind was trapped Mm-hmm. So it it was it was yes it was a challenge in thinking that that this was unattainable and, and but that but I didn't really believe it was unattainable. Oh no
2: no no addict does right. That's I, why I, it's so delicious. Yeah.
1: So like and 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 I honestly think that if that wall had come down and he had come back to me, we would not have worked out. Obviously. No. Because I'm a love avoidant. As soon as I got what I wanted, I would have realized I didn't really want it, which I did many, many times with many men after
2: The magical qualities would have disappeared. He would have shown himself to be a a flawed human being like everybody is. Exactly. And you wouldn't have had a fantasy to check out with.
1: Yeah, we did. We hooked up later. We hooked up in like, you know, what, 2011? Yeah. Right Right before I was really actively seeking recovery for this mm-hmm. and that was uh, it, it wasn't such a low bottom it was just that I recognized I was still digging you know I'd never really like come up from my bottom it was just I was digging and digging and digging and not really getting anywhere hooking up with him not it was terrible it was just it wasn't this dream come true it wasn't this fantasy it was like I had to get stoned first mm-hmm. so that I could even uh, be naked with him right I nothing had changed mm-hmm. I was still 18 years old In a thirty-one-year-old woman's body, and uh, and that was and I was also juggling other obsessions with men in my life. There was this one that, you know, was was married, you know, that I couldn't have, and there was another one from, you know, in in a group of work colleagues, you know, it was just Mm -hmm. it was just endless. It was constant inappropriate choices on my lazy Susan of addiction
2: and (laughs) such a great sentence.
1: It's it it, it just I I finally called a psychic and I was like, look,
2: that's your bottom.
1: That's my bottom. (laughs) No, but I I wasn't my first psychic. She she had talked to me for several years and she was finally just like, you know, I think you need to get help for this. Yeah. And I did. So I did. I started to, you know, enter into recovery for love addiction.
2: And so give me some snapshots where you began to feel uh, a new sense of hope, a new sense of self, and a new view on what real mature, healthy love looked like. It took a long time <laughs> it's hard it's peeling away years oh, and years God. of negative self beliefs and bad <sighs> modeling of Do you what- remember
1: when the towers fell when nine eleven fell i don't. I don't. <laughs> Well, this thing happened. It was the rubble. Do you remember all that rubble? I remember Mm -hmm. thinking, how are they going to clean up all that rubble? That was just huge. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt like. I felt like those towers, you know, and and they had stood for so long. And then when they came down, it was just absolute catastrophic destruction. That was what on an emotional, spiritual, psychic dimension was happening to me.
2: When you began to go through the withdrawal of of not going into addictive relationships. Well,
1: realizing that everything that I had thought to be true was not true.
2: Right. And feeling the pain that you had buried as a child. Yeah. Because now you didn't have something to numb yourself with or distract yourself with.
1: Well, because I had tried to do it with food. You know, I had gone into food recovery and eating disorder recovery in 2000. I had gone into uh codependence recovery in 2000 as well. The 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 real bottom for me, the real actual, you know what the real actual bottom for me was um when my a relationship that I that went real fast, real furious, real, you know, 0 to 60 in like 2 seconds. I thought that was it i pretty much risked everything for this one relationship when i was 30 years old and it collapsed he ended up literally jumping off of uh the balcony at the house of blues because he was that trashed and knocking his front teeth in on new year's day 2010 2011 new year's Mm day 2010 and i ended up at cedars-sinai at three in the morning waiting for him to come out of his induced coma that they had to induce him. They had to sedate mm-hmm. him and induce him into uh, and intubate him because mm-hmm. of how combative he was because of all the alcohol. I had never right. seen anything like this before. I was in love with this guy. As every addict knows is like, he's the one mm-hmm. and he wasn't the one man. He really wasn't the one. And I was in absolute ruin. That was it. That was my bottom when I realized yet again, I have made the wrong choice. I have picked the wrong guy and I don't love this guy and I don't want to sit at the hospital with him. Sure. I don't want to take his ass home. I'm pissed.
2: Not only is he unavailable, so are his teeth. His teeth were gone.
1: His front teeth or one of his teeth. It was like one tooth, but mm-hmm. I remember saying that he was an actor. I remember sitting there with his manager at my kitchen table and just being like, I, like, this has happened so many times. And he was like, do you think maybe it's you? And I was like, yeah, that's how broken you have to be Mm -hmm. because so many people have come to me in the past with problems and issues and crying and this and that. And I've said that to them. Do you think maybe it's time to look at you and they're not broken enough and they get mad at me? Yeah. How dare you? It's not me. It's, Who do you think you're talking to? It, I came to you to, for advice and right. you're telling me it's me. And it's like.
2: I came to you for the advice I wanted to hear. Exactly. Not uh, exactly. Asking for help means being willing to accept whatever form it comes in. Yeah. Despite it being scary. And that that leap of faith when it does begin to take hold. Yeah is that for me was when I began to believe that there was something in the universe helping me for you. Give me some moments when you began to feel like you were moving in the right direction is as, as after you got into recovery um, and any things, any exercises you did or routines you had that were helpful
1: so I did the morning pages for years from the Artist way. That was something that I, that I used in my recovery pretty much obsessively every journaling. single morning. Mm-hmm. I would get up and I would write for half an hour because it takes 10 minutes per page to write a college-ruled piece of mm-hmm. binder paper. And I would fill up notebooks. I mean, I did it for years. And I started noticing after a couple of years that a lot of the writing was uh, optimistic and hopeful you know i had to i had to clear a lot of rubble i had to get through a lot of rage and a lot of abandonment and fear and despair and yeah yeah there were times when i would just drive around and i would make voice recordings in my car And these voice recordings are heavy, you know. And then like an hour later, I would make another voice recording and I would literally say, I really, really hope that when people feel suicidal, they know that it is going to pass. And I was really resistant to going and seeing a psychiatrist because I didn't want to go on medication. I didn't want to accept that I might actually have a chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. I was so sad. Recovery, withdrawal was so Painful, and I just, and that's why I didn't get sober from substances for a long time until um, I realized that I had that issue. Because when you go through withdrawal from love addiction, when you realize that validation's not the way to go, it it, it the loneliness is palpable. It's
2: it's crushing. It's
1: absolutely crushing. Yeah, and I needed substances like pot. Like I smoked a lot of pot. So I never really recovered. I think a lot of the reason why my recovery in um, in love and sex, you know, addiction, compulsive relationship pursuit was it took so long was because I really wasn't willing to put down everything right. and get to ground zero.
2: And to feel, to feel all your feelings unnumbed. Yeah.
1: And tell people and, and let them right. hold you. Yeah. I had this weird sci- psychiatrist. She was great but she's really famous too she wrote this book called toxic parents susan forward Mm -hmm. and i sought her out i drove out to um i drove out to like past thousand oaks Mm -hmm. was it westchester or where is it out there i don't know i don't know i drove way out there for like half a year and paid her exorbitant amounts of money so that she could tell me not to talk to my mom anymore you know, and I remember there was this one part where she was like, she like came over and sat with me on her little leather couch, and she was like tiny. She, I felt like she was like a hundred years old. She was like, "You need me to hold you right now," and I was like, "I don't want this woman to touch me." But she came and perched down next to me, and I, I just like sort of sat awkwardly next to her, and she kind of wrapped her bird-like stick arms around me, and just kind of lightly petted me. And I remember thinking, "This is not comforting at all. This is so weird." Yeah. But it was nice. It was like the first step towards acknowledging that I needed something like that, you know, because that's not what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted, you know, the movie. I wanted we see each other, our eyes meet and the sparks go off and then we make passionate love on the hood of a car, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. what love was to me. Love was not this weird, awkward, kind of mildly felt mildly inappropriate because the appropriate feels inappropriate. Mm hmm when you're unhealthy, when you're oh, sick.
0: That's
2: such, a great, that's such a great way of, of, of putting that. And, and we never think of love as possibly beginning with coffee after right. a support group meeting with a half dozen people, two of whom annoy the fuck out of you. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of us, that's, that's how it starts.
1: Yeah, it feels inappropriate to like start off slow and make friends with people that you're not comfortable with. Yeah. you you don't want that you want to see you only want to pick who you want to pick mm-hmm. cuz we're selfish and we don't want to risk being mildly uncomfortable even for a second
2: and to begin to understand the difference between uncomfortable in moving towards health and uncomfortable in staying in toxicity and not listening to your body. Right. That is a hard thing to to navigate that just takes time.
1: Like, do you know how uncomfortable and inappropriate it felt for me to tell a man, I don't want you to pick me up from my house on our first date. I would like to meet you in a public place. Right. And I'd like to start with coffee or juice or tea. That felt so inappropriate. Like, how dare I exert what I need? Mm-hmm. How, how dare I be ungrateful, you know what I mean? Or, or controlling or whatever. Or change
2: the trope of what dating looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then I had to be honest because I remember one guy on one of my other sober dates, I, I dated soberly. It's what we call sober dating. I did some sober dating and I remember being like, can we start with coffee? And the man saying, I don't like coffee. How about cocktails at seven at night? And my first dates need to be very, very g rated, you know, (laughs) like no cocktails, no sexy bars. I remember one first date I had before I was really sober. I was, I was supposedly soberly dating, but like my sober dating looked like, uh, Don Julio on the rocks at the peninsula at like 11 at night, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> with like a guy with a black amex who was like down d to f
0: <laughs> yeah
1: that that was a sober date, but not, so in my new sober dates after that, like were okay, well, you don't want coffee, but here I just need to share with you that I don't feel comfortable going out at night just yet, you know, I get to be honest, I get yeah. to say. What about juice? Do you like juice? It doesn't have to be coffee if you don't like mm. coffee, but it's got to be in the daytime.
2: And you're giving that person an opportunity to reveal their character exactly. when you express your needs.
1: And they and they do people reveal their character very when quickly. You... Exactly.
2: Uh, and you feel like you're in a in a good place to today with uh, your your husband and the ability to be present and intimate and. Um, Give me a snapshot from from your life with your husband or a friend or some moment of love where you can look at it and say, "I've changed."
1: Um. My husband is so right for me. Uh, he he is quite possibly my favorite human being on the planet. And what he what it looks like is it looks like we don't we don't speak to each other in a way that's not loving. But when we're brutally honest with each other, I take time to ask, can we have a conversation about this? That's really what recovery looks like for me in this relationship. Because he's a man, he's a red blooded American man, he messes things up, he is not perfect by any means. When I say he's perfect for me, it's because I did a lot of work and know what I need in a man, what I need in a partner. And he checked off all the boxes, right? Like we always talk about that. He checks off all the boxes, she checks off all the boxes but when i get into my trauma zone where i'm afraid or he's done something that i don't like you know we need to talk about something like okay for example he didn't work for a long time he needed to get a job and he was doing a lot of not doing job searching it it wasn't I wasn't acting out in anger and saying to him, why aren't you doing this? It was, it was more like, Hey, when can we have a conversation about something that's a little sensitive and I'm a little scared to bring this up Mm -hmm. and him saying anytime, you know, cause like when you come to people with love, when you come to people in vulnerability, in sobriety, people are willing to help. Yeah. So he sat down and we talked and I said, I really want, you know, I really feel like I'll feel better if you were more proactive Proactive, yeah. and he got a job right away. I mean, he just, I think a lot of people don't realize how effective vulnerability is. That is a loving choice. People don't want it. They they, they say they're in love. They say they love this person and then the person does something they don't like and they get mad, right? Yes. How you act, how you react to that is the love.
2: Yes, Yeah. Communicating with them in a way that minimizes the potential of them getting defensive is a very important form of love.
1: Right. Loving him so much that I don't want to go into my old trauma. He had nothing to do with that. He wasn't there when I was 10. So when my dad didn't work for a long time, my mom shamed him over it, criticized him, yelled at him. Asked him, don't you care about your kid? What are you doing? Get off your ass. Literally, get off your ass. And I guess I just, I think I would have repeated that. Absolutely. I'm not a saint. I'm, you know, I think that if I had not been so active in recovery every single day, participating in a program of recovery for myself, spiritually awakening to who I'm really supposed to be, not who Mm -hmm. I put on, but like really who I am inside. I think that I would have repeated that exact same pattern. That's my default. My default is to shame, blame, attack, and defend.
2: And would it be fair to say that part of that sense of a higher power working in your recovery is that it's released you from the idea that you need somebody, that you need a partner to be whole or to have um, any any quality.
1: Yeah, you know it's your cool life. about about the about my part of the journey. At least, in, you know, for me, is partnership became separate from me. There's me, Christina, and then there's my marriage, and I'm a part of that marriage, and I participate in that marriage, but the marriage is not me.
2: That's such a great way of putting it.
1: And I believe that my higher power wants me to participate in that marriage. But first and foremost, I have to be aligned with him, Mm -hmm. my higher power. I have to be, I have to be in a place where my marriage is just like an offshoot of the work that I already do spiritually. I wasn't ready for marriage. I wanted this thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It, It wasn't my time because I hadn't done the work. Right. I could have married several people on that list of of messed up. There were plenty of mm-hmm. opportunities. And I and I I just I'm so grateful. The thing I'm most grateful for is I'm really grateful to know what the truth is. When I know when I'm lying, I know when something doesn't feel right. You know, I know when like something's a knockoff, a bag or shoes Mm -hmm. or like, I just know something, this isn't real. This isn't the real deal. And I've always wanted the real deal. I have never been willing to settle for
2: less. It it is one of the greatest things to work towards and to begin to feel is a sense of uh, our authentic self because it guides everything. It guides every decision. It's, it makes, uh, you know, the times when we're alone that much better. Um, everything. everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah.
1: You just, everybody wants that. Have you noticed? Everybody it's wants that. It's so
2: hard to get there, but yeah. it, it is doable. They it just want doable. peace.
1: They want real, genuine peace. And it's not, it's really not what the media and what the world shows you is peace you know it's not going to come in a pill it's not going to come in a person it's not a house it's not an award none of those things bring peace if anything they disrupt it (laughs) so
2: well christina thank you so much for coming and sharing your story um i'm very very thankful for people like you in recovery oh
1: my gosh this was wonderful i'm very grateful for you too
2: love it love it love it love it uh, today's episode is sponsored by Veradesk. it's the world's leading standing desk solution helping professionals maintain a healthy active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veridesk converts any desk into a standing desk and is designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veridesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. That way, you get more done and focus on the things that matter to you. Veridesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. Veridesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veridesk. To learn more about Veridesk standing desk solutions, visit veridesk.com slash work elevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at Veradesk.com slash work elevated work elevated um before we get to a couple of surveys uh i want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to help support the podcast you can be a monthly donor via patreon or paypal if you do it through patreon though then uh, i can give you occasional uh freebies bonus content uh, enter into a raffle Uh, i post pictures of gracie and other stuff um and there's ways to support the podcast non-financially. Um, it would mean a tremendous amount to me if you went to iTunes, wrote a nice review, gave us a good rating, uh, and especially subscribe. That's a huge way to help support the podcast is to be, just become a subscriber. Click that subscribe button. That increases our downloads and that helps attract more advertisers. This is a struggle in the sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself myopic thumb and about her anxiety. She writes, I hate my hometown so much that the only reason I haven't killed myself is that I can't stand to be buried here. Oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, can you have a listener who has lived within more than one culture or continent. I've lived among three vastly different ethnic groups and cultures, and I didn't manage to assimilate into any of them. It would be kind of comforting to know that there are other people like me. Thanks for the show, Paul. Um, We have done episodes. I don't know if they are still on the free feed or if they are in the back catalog, which is, is currently unavailable, but you know that... Kind of sparked an idea in my head, which is that uh, I think what I'm going to do is occasionally put a link up to an episode that I think would be helpful to somebody inquiring like you are uh, for Patreon donors, and I'm going to do it uh, at the starting at the three dollar a month uh, donation level. So uh, there is an episode. That I can think of. it's It's between one of two one of two episodes that I have, but I think it, it would fit what you're uh, what you're looking for. And I wish I could have the whole back catalog uh, up, but uh, financial there are financial considerations that uh, have to be taken in, into account, and that's the reality of of doing this podcast full time is that i have to find uh ways to 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 keep it going so i think you understand so i will put a link to that uh by the time this episode airs those of you on patreon i will have a link for you to download that from a google drive Uh, so you can either download it or you can stream it but their player isn't isn't the best so i recommend just downloading that mp3 file um and if you're having trouble playing it, uh, you probably need to choose an application to play it, like iTunes or any any podcasting platform that you, that you have. This is struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself naked, online, afraid, everywhere else. About her anxiety, she writes, everyone hates me, so I guess I'll bite all my cuticles off. Question mark about alcoholism and drug addiction. Weed is the hug I never got as a child. About her love addiction, I get paid to need men's validation, and I'm scared. I get paid to need men's validation, and I'm scared. Healing as part of myself will make me bad at my job. About her sex addiction, tingly hands, a dead vibrator, and an empty brain. Bliss. Uh, about being addicted to Twitter. Twitter is my abusive boyfriend I keep trying to break up with but miss when I'm lonely. About experiencing sexual bias. If I'm going to be if I'm going to be reduced to meat, why not use it to finance a car? And about being abusive. My ability to manipulate others scares me. I'm afraid I do it unintentionally. And then a snapshot from her life paying $10 in bank fees for my money orders when it would have been a couple of bucks at the grocery store's customer service desk. But the people that work the counter are much nicer at the bank and don't scare me as much. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. It's amazing, like one survey, how we can get such a deep, deep look into somebody's inner life. I am just endlessly, endlessly grateful for what you guys pour out into these surveys. And if you've never filled out a survey, just go to the website, click on surveys, and there's about a dozen different ones that you can fill out anonymously. And we don't record even the IP address that it comes from, that's turned off. So you can share anything, anything. Uh, this is an awful awesome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Cloud Brain and she writes I recently went through a few weeks of intense suicidal thoughts I've been reading Calvin and Hobbes before bed to calm myself down and one night I read a strip where they're talking about not knowing what happens after death I felt a jolt go through my body as I realized that in all of my obsessing about my own death I'd completely forgotten that I have no idea what happens after we die I've been so afraid of living that I'd somehow forgotten to be afraid of dying. Even in the moment, the absurdity of that thought made me laugh. Also, as I was writing this, my inner monologue was speaking in your voice, Paul. As I imagine you potentially reading it on the podcast, I thought you'd enjoy that. Uh, that, That is such a funny dichotomy. The fear of dying at the same time, the fear of living. It's like... I am afraid that I'm going to be hit by a bus, but I am afraid that I'm going to die before I ever get to see what the underside of a bus looks like. I'm afraid of falling off a cliff, but I'm also afraid that I'll never get to feel what it's like to fail at flying. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a trans man who calls himself very tired dude, and uh, he writes about his depression. Being stressed because you have too much on your plate, which makes you work late and sleep like shit, which makes you tired, which makes it harder for you to get stuff done, which adds to stuff to your plate, which stresses you out, which dot, dot, dot. That's such a good description. Uh, About difficulty expressing himself. There is a concrete wall that separates my internal world from what you see. I desperately need to tell you I'm not okay. But I'm only able to drop hints that you can't see because I'm able to just go about my day. Snapshot from his life. I had a moment the other day that perfectly summed up my depression. I finally got up the energy to clean my kitchen after a couple of weeks because I was having a relatively good day and the smell was getting horrendous. I went to put on a pot of coffee while I worked and noticed there was about a half a pot left from a month ago. I'm not sure what appalled me more, the fact that there was something growing in my coffee pot or the fact that I caught myself curiously examining it trying to determine whether it was mold or a spider web. Either way, I didn't have that pot of coffee. Oh my God, that's fantastic. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Dutch and about uh, his body issues. He writes, One day waking up and believing I'm fat and waking up the next morning being pleasantly surprised that I'm not fat. Rinse, repeat, three times a week. I'm the skinniest fat fuck I know. That is a t-shirt. I'm the skinniest fat fuck I know. Snapshot from his life. I'm currently living on my own for the first time and all the demons I escape by having people around me are back. I actively believe I have to be hypercritical of myself or I won't be a functioning member of society or be worth living. If I'm not my own worst enemy, I won't have a reason to exist as an insult to existence itself. I'm riddled with fears and I'm neurotic. I'm in therapy now and I'm trying a new form of EMDR to actively engage my future tripping. On that note of future tripping, I've joined a workshop where I'm being taught how to think about my career and who I am. It's mostly fine, but my pessimistic answers are somewhat off-putting to some. Every time someone asks about my future, I lock up, and all I can think about is me under a bridge with a bottle and a needle in one arm and a gun in the other. Either that or a desk job somewhere. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Maine Coon Kitten for sale. And he writes, Today I realized in a support group that I didn't have to get hung up on the word God because my higher power is obviously going to be specific to me. I have the freedom to define and change my mind in regards to what exactly my higher power presents itself as. This is an invigorating and powerful idea that's breathed a little light into me during a dark time. I felt like a veil had been lifted. That's beautiful, man. That is beautiful. Thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Warrior Wounds. And snapshot from her life and her codependency. I was unable to hold back my tears in a restaurant, so I gave the restaurant a five-star review on Yelp so the staff would know it wasn't them. Oh, that is fantastic. I love it. This is the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls themselves sad but not rad. Um, how would you like to be remembered as someone that created something meaningful, art, or a positive change for the world? How does it feel writing that, terrifying that it'll never come true? very overwhelming. How would you use a time machine? I can't stop reliving this memory of walking my dogs with my grandfather in the pouring rain when I was 11, and they were all alive, so I'd probably go back to that time just to experience it again. I'm supposed to feel happy about seeing my favorite artist tonight, but I don't. I feel suicidal, and then I'm going out of my mind. I'm supposed to feel grateful and lucky that I have family that support me, but I don't, as I constantly feel depressed and anxious, and that, to me, feels like being ungrateful. I'm supposed to feel curious and hopeful about my future, but I don't. I feel apathetic and tired, feeling that things will only get worse. I feel like a bystander in my own life. That was like a little poem to those of us that struggle with depression and anxiety. That, when I read something like that, it helps me feel less alone. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Better and worse. I feel authentic, but I also feel guilty. Please don't feel guilty. Said the pot to the kettle. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Maybe. The feelings aren't abnormal themselves, but I imagine if other people were in my position, they would be better. That is a myth. That is a myth. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes. I feel I'm in a mental illness feedback loop where bad feelings make me feel bad, which makes me breathe the bad thoughts. I feel I'm lazy and ungrateful uh, than sick. Uh, I think they meant to put the word uh, more than sick. I'm not sure. So knowing others feel the same would reinforce that my brain may be lying to me. I can assure you that so many of us feel the same. I mean, you described in the I shouldn't feel this way paragraph. You described how millions of us feel. And I'm just referring to my very crowded living room. Did I mention that I have a million people staying with me? And I have three pillows. Oh, the fights. The fights over the pillows. So what I do is I I come in from my bedroom and uh, I shoot a shotgun into my own ceiling. And they scatter. And uh, then I go back in my bedroom and they immediately resume fighting over the three pillows. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a slice of life. She writes, my whole life I've dealt with depression, anxiety, and self-injury. I've always felt guilty because there was no reason for me to be depressed. I have a wonderful and loving family and have experienced no trauma to my knowledge. But thanks to this podcast, I found I've been able to slowly accept my depression. I'm very close to my mom as well, and she never understood my depression, but tries her hardest. That's so beautiful, by the way, when a parent does that. Oh, that is just the ultimate act of love. Uh, So when I was younger, my parents would ask how I was, and I always said tired. Even after sleeping all day, they would just laugh and make jokes about how I had no reason to be tired because they didn't understand. Now, with the help and understanding this podcast, i found ways to explain to my parents how I feel going through the motions of loving every day, and how some days I wake up and it feels like my body weighs 20 tons and I just want to sleep and disappear. How I'm so tired of living sometimes and just want to sleep and never wake up. How every day my whole body is just numb, and for once, my mom finally understood and gave me a hug. That is... just gives me so much hope that society might be very, very slowly moving in the right direction in regards to understanding these things. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself moot. And she, she writes, I was at a family gathering with my father and an older neighbor I hadn't seen in a long time that was asking about my brother. She then asked how old he was and I told her 35. She then said, oh, so you're the youngest? And I told her, no, I'm 39. She then told me how great I looked and how impressed she was that I looked so much younger than my 39 years. Later, I mentioned to my father how good that made me feel and what a nice compliment that was. He responded with, she's 70 years old. She has to look in the mirror at that every day. Anyone would look good to her in comparison. He sounds like a great guy, your dad. I'd like to meet him. I'd like to meet him. And just step on his toes. And just stand on his toes and just look him right in the eyes. And just go, how does that grab you, old man? What do you think of that? Hmm? And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself panic attacks in a funeral home bathroom. I don't even know what that means, but I love it. Uh, Her happy moment. I am graduating high school with my two best friends in a few days. All three of us have been in marching band with our school for seven years. Each year, it's taken them seven years to graduate from high school. Uh, each year, we have a band banquet to celebrate the end of the year. After the banquet a few nights ago, my friends and I went out for ice cream to celebrate. We were laughing and telling stories. And while I was watching them laugh and smile, I just thought to myself, I want moments like these with them my whole life. Who knows if I'll see them much ever again, but I felt so loved by them, and I love them as well. They make me feel warm. When we left the ice cream shop, we'd each parked in different directions of each other, so we literally started to head separate ways. One of them said something like, This is like the end of a movie. This is so sad. It really was such a cinematic moment, but I was overwhelmed with love for them, so I called them back over to me. We just took took turns hugging each other, and then we parted ways. I love those two so much, and it's going to be difficult without them, especially because we've been through so much together. I hope I find new friends like that. To anyone who gets discouraged by having bad friends or people that you don't feel 100% positive about, you'll find your people. They'll come eventually, and when they do, you'll know it was worth the wait because a good friend is invaluable. Words of wisdom from a high schooler. Love it. Love it. Well, I hope you guys got something out of today's episode. And I hope if you're out there and you're struggling that after listening the last 110 minutes that you know that you're not alone. You're not alone. And uh, it's a big boat of us. Think of it as a terrible cruise ship uh, minus the food poisoning. <laughs> this has taken a terrible turn. Let's just think about Gracie. Let's just think about Gracie. Let's close. Let's close on that one. But if, seriously, if you're out there and you're struggling, get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. Try something different today, because uh, you know the saying: "If nothing changes, nothing changes." But never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know in some is bizarrely beautifully, up in some is weird bizarrely
1: way.
0: beautifully fucked up in some weird ways.